0: Good morning. We're continuing our look into Luke. We find ourselves in chapter 18, Uh, chapter 18, verse 35, which Alan's read to us. Jesus heals the blind beggar. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is, What Do You Want From Jesus? It's a question which Jesus asked the blind beggar. So we have Jesus, 2,000 years ago, we have this guy, meekness and majesty, walking down the road, but walking and approaching Jericho. Verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And here we've set the scene already in just one short verse. As he drew near to Jericho, Jericho is um, about 17 or 20 kilometers, uh, hang on on the map, it's east, east of Jerusalem. And Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, you see? because it was a time of the Passover, and the Passover was extremely important in the Jewish calendar, where everybody made that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the heart of their nation, which represented God's presence with his people. He had the temple at Jerusalem. That's where they wanted to go and worship. That's where God was. And so, en masse, every year, at the time of Passover, they made their pilgrimage. And so you can imagine, this road was busy. The towns were busy. You know, I doubt if everybody could could squish into Jerusalem at one time, so I expect some people were staying over in, uh, in some lodgings. But it was a busy time. They were celebrating the Passover. That had some significance. They were celebrating... And remembering the time when God rescued them as a nation out of the hands of the enemy, out of the hands of Egypt. They were celebrating that they'd been liberated, no longer captive by Egypt, but rescued. You see, they were celebrating a clash of kingdoms where God's kingdom won out. The kingdom ruled by Pharaoh was saying, No, I will not let you go the kingdom of God saying, you will let my people go. That's God ruling. And we know of their rescue as well. We know that they had to sacrifice that lamb and daub it over the doorposts. And the judgment of God passed over them, sparing their firstborn sons. Their deliverance was through the sacrifice of a lamb. So this was the, this was the significance of people going to Jerusalem. And this is exactly what Jesus was heading into Jerusalem to be. He was heading to be that sacrificial lamb. You just see in the the verses preceding uh, the passage which we have today, from 31 to 34, you see it titled in the NIV, Jesus again predicts his death. He knows what he's doing. He knows that this Passover was something significant. So he drew near to Jericho. A blind man was sitting on the roadside, begging. Well, we know in the news recently how the affliction of blindness can be devastating. We've seen that David Rathbone, the guy, the policeman who was blinded by Raoul Mote, who shot and lost his sight. He committed suicide earlier this month and his funeral was only just a few days ago. In one of the reports, an article written by him, quoting his brother, says, On the whole, he was a positive man. But I think sometimes, in the darkest moments, there was nobody to help him. And he just used to say, I want somebody to turn the lights on. I think those times, he was at his lowest. You see, the destitution of a beggar at those times was pretty severe. You can see he was on the roadside begging. He couldn't work. He was known as an expendable amongst that society, which meant he was a bit lower than the lowest. That it didn't really care. If somebody came across a blind beggar who died, that's, that's just a little bit less uh, space cluttered up on the side of the road. It was only just through the, the laws that God had given the Jews that he could receive food through, through giving to the poor He made, uh, uh, the Jews giving to the poor, made him able to live. So you could imagine, for this guy, depending on God's people giving him food, this was like the spawning of salmon to the grizzly bear in the woods. You know, there were loads of people he could actually um, call upon. You know, what's best to then guilt trip a religious person into giving you some cash? You know, God says, you need to give it to me. I'm poor and lonely. Wonderful. You might even manage to get a few more um, bites to eat that week. We have this man then, sat in the dust, a sorry sight, an expendable in society, with Jesus drawing near to him. We look at verse 36 together. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of, Naz- Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so when he heard the crowd passing by, he unsurprisingly inquired, well, what's this? Is this another meal ticket, perhaps? Well, the thing is, this next bit shows us that he, it was more than a meal ticket that was on his mind. You see, he exposed a faith in the king. The crowd knew him as a Nazarene. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But this blind man understood who he was. That this Jesus was more than just that. Instead, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. For this man, this crowd was a royal cavalcade. You could say that although being blind, he saw Jesus as royalty. And the thing is, nowhere else in Luke's Gospel does it have anybody proclaiming Jesus to be son of David. And that should tell us to sit up and listen because that's of particular significance in this story. You see, Israel, all of Israel was under the occupation of Rome. They were suppressed by them. They couldn't do what they wanted to do as a nation. They couldn't be what they wanted to be as a nation. Instead, they gave taxes to Rome to keep that's them under suppression. That's the irony of the situation. They weren't the people that they were supposed to be. God had rescued them, but they were still occupied. They had promises of a king. They had promises of a king, but they didn't really um, experience that. Ever since King David Ruled the nation of Israel. They'd been hanging on that promise, the promise that God made to David, a king to rule over a kingdom that surpasses even the rule and dominion of David himself, who is to be greater than the greatest king of Israel. You'll just read back into 2 Samuel, that promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now then, tell my servant David... This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore. Oh, this is a promise that they wanted to hear and wanted to live. As they did at the beginning, and have done ever since that time I appointed leaders over my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Oh, please. I don't want another 50% of my wages going to the oppressor. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, singular, one person. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But, I will, uh, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Oh, please, God, where is this king? Well, you see, Luke connects Jesus with this promise. At the beginning of uh, the Gospel of Luke, verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, as he's speaking to, uh, uh, to Mary, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. You can see how the two just dovetail together. This is the king that the Jews were looking for. Excuse me. And so here we have this offspring of David passing by. And we have this beggar, expendable, the lowest of the low. Desperate to be heard, he calls upon the name of Jesus, his Messiah King, the promised one of God, the King who is to reign forever. But what do the crowd tell him to do? Shut up, they say. Just shut up. We don't want to hear that kind of words coming out of somebody's mouth at this time. Why, why do they tell him to shut up? This is great news, isn't it? Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's the one to rescue us. But they tell him to shut up. It may be because they considered uh, for Jesus' ministry, this lowly beggar is not part of the right crowd. It's not suitable for Jesus to be going along with people who are expendable. They can't offer anything. That's why they were called expendables, because they didn't contribute anything to the society. Or maybe it was that. We see that if you look a little bit further back in this chapter, you, you see the disciples being rebuked because they thought the children weren't suitable to be in Jesus' presence. Or perhaps we see a clash of kingdoms again, as we did with Pharaoh. You know, the, under the Roman occupation, Caesar is king. To call anybody else king would be punishable by death, and a grim death at that. You can imagine what trouble would have been caused if a Roman soldier was earwigging a bit, and said, what's this beggar saying? He's this son of David. And somebody says, oh yeah, that was, that's, that's a promised um, God, you know, he's supposed to be our king. Oh, just imagine that. He's being called the son of David. Shut up. Because with a king comes a kingdom. In chapter 17, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So we're expecting a power struggle, aren't we? Shut up, Jesus. We don't want to know that this, this is a king. We're afraid of Caesar... You see, when it comes to contact with Jesus, a power struggle is always going to occur, simply because of who he is. You know, the king of kings, who has a claim on everything in creation, is a threat to anyone who rejects his rule. You know, Jesus' true identity will always be suppressed, ignored, even changed because of the implications of Jesus, the son of David. But the beggar knows the truth about Jesus. He knows the nature and power of this promised king. He's convinced of it. This isn't an opportunity to be missed. Though the beggar is blind, we're told that, he sees Jesus for who he is. And to this, it means hope. No more sitting in that dust. Luke also records um, this about Jesus as he starts his ministry. Back in chapter 4 he says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives very reminiscent of the Passover redemption and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the, year's Lord, uh, the year of the Lord's favor and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, audaciously he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Absolutely, yes it is Joseph's son. Joseph, in the line of David. And then comes Jesus, that offspring of that promised king. Joseph's son, the royal line. The king to free people from captivity and to give sight to the blind. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A blind man. No wonder that even though they told him to shut up, He cried out all the more, knowing and being convinced of who Jesus is, with no shame, no embarrassment, and no fear of what people thought of him. His faith in the king didn't allow him to keep silent. Well, Jesus stops hearing as he hears this cry. He waits for him and he sends for this beggar. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus knew the man's faith. If anybody's been calling him Jesus, son of David, in a Roman-occupied territory, well, this man's got to be convinced of something. Jesus knew about his faith. And he wanted people to see this man's faith in action. You can see the boldness and expectation of this guy's faith in Jesus. Jesus. What would Jesus the Nazarene be able to do for you? Being that beggar, would you think, well, hang on, he's, he's quite popular, isn't he? Uh, maybe he can have a whip round and I can have a bumper, a bumper gift in my, in my hat. Would he be able to do much more? I don't know. But Jesus the Nazarene, who is the son of David, what do you want me to do for you? to uh, to be asked that question from him opens up a whole world of possibilities. And he knows that. And he goes straight for it and asks for the impossible. He asks Jesus for his sight. Sounds crazy. I've been blind. But Lord, I want my sight. Lord, let me recover my sight, he says. Jesus said to him, "Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you." Oh, he got it right. Phew! I thought you were Jesus, the King, the promised Messiah. I laid my oath before you, and you're right. I can see. Jesus said to him, "Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well." You see, Jesus gives sight to the blind. In fact, here it says, receive your sight. But it's more than that. Jesus actually says, just look up. He commands him to see. And you see, Jesus is the creator of all the world. Through him, nothing nothing that hasn't been made has been made. See, these are the words of a creator speaking. Creation in this man's eyes. He's saying, see, and they do. This is the powerfulness of an awesome God. It's a miracle. They should have been astounded. We should be astounded that God can do this. And as he opens his eyes, who's the first person he sees? But he sees the face of his Savior. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Excuse me. You see, is it his faith that has made him well? Well, you see, Jesus gives sight to the blind. It's who he has his faith in, that promised king. It's not saving faith if it's not faith in Jesus. And faith is knowing something to be true. This blind beggar knew something to be true. But it's more than just knowing. He trusted in knowing that truth and being convicted of it, he was stirred to action, to respond to him. You see, If it was a non saving faith for this guy, he'd just be and they didn't actually call upon the Lord Jesus, he would just be left sat in the dust, begging. You see, faith comes first, then Jesus gives sight. You know, we say seeing is believing, don't we? But really what Jesus says here is is believing is actually seeing. It flips it around. You see, faith is seeing the invisible. Well, maybe we... I don't know your position before Jesus or what you think of him. But do you feel that you know enough? Do you need to see more of Jesus before you believe in him? This beggar was blind. He didn't know too much. He knew that Jesus was the king and that he was passing by. That was enough He knew and he could see that. Do you need to have everything mapped out? Do you need to know the detail of everything that God has planned for you in the life of Jesus Christ before you think, okay, I'm on board now? You see, throughout the Gospels, Jesus always puts it in this order. He says, come, and you will then see. It's that faith, that trust in who Jesus is, putting your faith in him. You see, in this story, we have a twofold miracle, not just one. We might see that the, the giving a physical sight to the man was the, was the miracle, but also he had been spiritually blind too. And spiritual blindness affects everybody. Everybody in the entire world. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, We refuse to practice, that is the apostles, we refuse to practice cunning the God of this world has blinded men and women from seeing the glory of Jesus, then it needs the God of creation to restore that sight. The beggar's physical recovery of sight followed uh, followed the restoration of his spiritual sight. You see, the beggar, the blind man, saw the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God and he cried out for mercy. He recognized who was passing by. But it's wrong, though, to to think and forget about the physical healing in place of the spiritual. You know, Jesus' kingdom is about the restoration, not only of the spiritual, but of the physical, too. Jesus can heal and restore sight now. His power hasn't gone, neither has he. And that's why we pray for those things. That's why we pray for the um, Rosemary's friend earlier. But for some of us, maybe for many of us, we may have to wait until he comes. Until the promised resurrection to know the completed work of our spiritual and physical restoration. Now the blind beggar literally saw Jesus when his eyes were opened. He saw that the face of his Savior, full of compassion and love. But even then, the glory was veiled. We sing in that song, don't we? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Well, he'd opened his eyes. He might have just gone, Oh, oh, it's just, just you. You don't look very attractive or anything. Where's, where's your robes? But he saw the loving compassion of his Savior. But there is a day. There is a day, that resurrection day, when we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, unveiled glory, uh, with our eyes wide open, when He returns to bring everything under His rule as King. And this is our hope. This is the hope for believers and followers of Jesus. And Luke writes in his gospel account of uh, in his gospel account and about this blind beggar so that we may have certainty about the things that we have been taught. We've been taught that Jesus is the king. We should be certain of it. No other can give sight to the blind. Therefore, we must call out to God for that miracle, to show us mercy. Well, what does it result in? It results in a God-glorifying life. Imagine the liberation felt by this blind beggar destitute, the expendable. But now he can be worth something to society. He gets up, he can follow, he can move, he can do things. Verse 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Well, here we have a pattern of a life whose sight has been restored. He saw Jesus and wanted to do nothing more than just to follow him. He is the God-man, the king who has given him sight. If He can give him sight, what else is in store for this man? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, you have been given sight. You have been restored. It has been a miracle. Don't think that you've made that choice and and it's been down to you. No, God has worked in your heart and has revealed the Lord Jesus to you. What are you going to do with those new eyes? Well, this guy followed Jesus because he was his king. We should follow him. He's our king. Compassionate and gracious. And in following him... Proverbs says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. See, with new eyes, we need to walk with him. We need to follow him. We need to observe his ways. You see, this guy, though, he didn't receive his sight and just get lost in the crowd. This guy was no stranger. He had a name. And his name was Bartimaeus. And this is what Marcus calls him. He knows him by name. He isn't lost in the crowd. He follows Jesus and follows with his people. Well, also the transformation in his life caused him to worship. This expendable, this refuse of society began worshipping the king. He was transformed in sight. What better way to give pra- uh, reason to give praise to God? But he also was a re- receiver of the power of God working in his life, the Creator God who speaks and things happen. Let's worship God, let's worship the Lord Jesus who has given us sight and that we can experience His power as the Creator God. And you see his transformation bore witness to those around him, to the Lordship of Christ. People started praising as well. And this is what we should be doing. Many times I expect preachers have have told this, the walk, the worship, and the witness, the three W's. But this is what we have here. a person who's received light walks with God. He worships God and he bears witness to him. You see, how do we see our own lives? Just have a bit of introspection now. Just think about you. You've been given spiritual sight. Do you see yourself as a bit of a grouch? Or as a bit of a grump? As a bit of a judge? As a bit, a bit somebody who's preoccupied, who's critical? Or do you see yourself as worshipful, full of thanksgiving, And giving God the glory. Well, if you're in the first category, well then you may want to think about rediscovering that sight which God has given you. Maybe you need to rediscover the wonder of seeing the Saviour. See, we've been given sight. and Now we can see things more clearly. We can see Jesus for who he is. And that is wonderful. We can see Jesus for for who he is in redeeming us. We can see who Jesus is in the creator. We can see Jesus in the one who's going to redeem us, the one who's going to restore us. Jesus is a lot of things that we can now see and celebrate. We can see ourselves as well. We can see how far we have fallen and how much Jesus has done for us. And we can see the world. We've already said that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. People who reject Jesus, they just can't see him. They're blind. What's your excuse? We need to look and see and dwell upon our Lord Jesus. Not only are they blind to uh, uh, to Jesus, they're blind to themselves. They might be blind because they don't think there's a problem. I don't see Jesus. Okay, there's Jesus, yeah, but I don't see him for the king. I don't see him as the redeemer, the hope of the world? Well, that's through pride. You might, you might be aware of the situation that you find yourself in. You might think, oh, I am useless. There's, no, there's nothing in my life that's worth living. Well, that will only cause despair if we can't see Jesus. David Rathbone was fully aware of his situation and despaired of life. You know, we might know of our defects and weaknesses, but with no knowledge of the Savior. And so we need to show compassion. We need to pass by proclaiming liberty for the captives, proclaiming the king. How are you using your sight? How are you using your sight? How are you using it? Are you looking at Jesus? Are you observing his ways? Are you seeing what he's done for us? Are you looking at yourself and thinking, that needs improving. Lord Jesus, help me. Are you looking at the world and saying they need sight? Help me be the light to them. What, in what ways are you using your eyes? Well, the title of the sermon was What Do You Want From Jesus? And I read from 2 Corinthians. And the apostle said this, but by the open statement of truth we would commend ourselves everyone, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Well, Jesus is here now and he's revealed himself. Rathbone wanted, said, I just want somebody to turn the lights on. Maybe you're, you're here this morning and you think, I want to make sense of the world. I want to make sense of who I am. I want hope.